Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines. This is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I wanted to chat with you a little bit today as we are all heading back to school with our kids. And, you know, some of you have been in school for a couple of weeks now. Some of you are just starting this week and some of you yet are going to be starting next week. It's a, an interesting time of year. It always was in my life, for sure. Um, we would inevitably have a, you know, some kind of little snafu, no matter how great I was at planning and getting organized, I absolutely would run into something or other at one time or another, no doubt. And, you know, when that happens, it's not about if it will happen, it's when it happens. How do you deal with it? What do you, what are you going to use as your strategies and your approaches? And I really wanted to spend some time thinking with you about your approach. and. For me, it honestly depended on what the topic was. So if there was a little snafu that was just a technical thing, like the bus route was not perfected, or, um, you know, maybe there was a scheduling glitch and we needed to move around a class or an event or um, some kind of uh, an activity. Those were things that my, my brain, my neurodiverse brain could deal with and could take in stride and just kind of get to work. Let me just get to work. I'm snapping here and, you know, jump in and figure out, okay, you know, let's get right to solutions. Let's get right to solving this problem. If it was something bigger, that went to the core of what my daughter Elizabeth's issues were like, you know, we, we inevitably, inevitably had difficulty around her health care. And it would be every year a new start in trying to explain her health care needs and that, you know, she's got temperature instability. So don't freak out if she, if she feels warm and clammy. She has, you know, really difficult bowel issues. So if she has diarrhea, it's not a trip home. It's not like, oh my God, she's sick. We've got to send her home and be home for three days until she has no diarrhea. In Elizabeth's case, we would never have school if that were the issue. Um, if people were curious and I'm air quoting that and want to know more about mitochondrial disease or some other things going on with her. And they would push me into this box of being their teacher and their coach. You know, that's when I started to get my back up. That's when I had a hard time keeping my cool, staying even and, you know, using my problem solving and strategic skills to just jump in and dissect and, and solve those problems. So I completely get 
that, you know, this time of year can be stressful, although we're all excited that our kids are back at school, it can be very stressful. It, it's a time to really pull in and rein in those emotions and, you know, sharpen those advocacy skills so that you can politely but effectively get done what you need. That's the entire, you know, that's the outcome. That's the goal. That's what you need to do. So I am going to do another podcast very soon about advocacy skills because so needed. And I know I need reminding even today about, you know, the things that I need to get in hand to be the best advocate I can be. So I'm just assuming that all of you would enjoy a refresher on that. My guest this week is totally in line with what I'm talking about here. Her name is Diane Gould, and she is a therapist. She has um, a wonderful philosophy. I, I love that she says that she is blending the art of psychotherapy with the science of behavior change. So amazing and awesome. Um, her services are uh, psychotherapy but also um, she, she does um, really innovative things. She's got something called a dinner with friends program. She does social skills training, including social thinking and peers. She's, you know, treating adults and children. And her approach is um, very unique and flexible, and she will do consultation as well as direct. Um, the reason that I jumped in and wanted to interview her was because she has been instrumental in bringing something called PDA to North America from Europe. It's called pathological demand avoidance. It's a new emerging profile that falls under the autism spectrum and it's recognized as an extreme avoidance of everyday activity with heightened anxiety. So unlike oppositional behavior, which we're all familiar with, where someone will say, I won't do that, a person with PDA will say, I can't do that. So in the US and Canada, many professionals and families have not even heard of PDA. Again, that's pathological demand avoidance, but it leaves parents whose child fits this profile without understanding support or resources. And if parents don't understand it and haven't heard of it, then you know that teachers and therapists are also behind. For many parents, they're feeling that, um, their kid or their adult kid does not fit into typical approaches for autism spectrum disorder. Right now, it's not in the DSM, so it's not accepted by many professionals. But you know what, folks, we've been there before, haven't we? I know I have. Um, but Diane has been instrumental in starting the PDA North America group. And they are bringing the information over from Europe. Um, and a 
this profile, if I can just tell you a little bit about it, uh, talks about persistent difficulties with social communication and social interaction and restrictive and repetitive patterns of behavior, activities, or interests that are present since early childhood to the extent that these limit and impair everyday functioning. So those are some characteristics that they would share with autism. And often there's some sensory experience that's related, but they would also have this extreme need for control, which is anxiety related. And they're driven to avoid everyday demands and expectations, including things that they actually want to do or enjoy doing. And this is to an extreme extent. Um, they use approaches that are social in nature in order to avoid the demands and will present with many of the key features of PDA rather than just one or two. I know that, um, you know, many people think that they know what autism looks like. And so it can lead to uh, presentations in some people of PDA being missed altogether or misdiagnosed or misunderstood, which can definitely lead to poor outcomes. Um, I really understand when people get their backup about uh, autism cures or new things in the autism community. And when I posted a blog post about PDA, we got, you know, quite a few comments back. Uh, some were positive and some were like, hey, this is, you know, snake oil. Don't follow this. Many quote autism cures out there that don't work. Um, so I absolutely encourage you to do your research, listen to this podcast episode, take it all in and think about it. Think about whether it applies to you and your kiddo. Think about whether it applies to somebody you know or you're treating. And, you know, absolutely no one is expecting that this bit of information is going to convert you immediately. Just have the open heart and the open mind to understand that we are always learning new things about the brain and about autism. Okay, so that is my spiel about Diane Gould. I'm amazed and astounded. She lives my philosophy of create the things you wish existed. She is a quintessential professional. And I had a lovely conversation with her about PDA and about her practice. So go ahead, dig in and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you, the good, the bad and the ugly. So come on, weigh in and let me know what questions, concerns or responses you have to this episode. And here we go. And we are gonna have a good time today. There is something new in the world of autism, and it is really interesting. Uh, my guest today is Diane Gould, and she has introduced me to PDA, Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a new profile of autism. So we're going to talk about that today. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Diane. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. I love talking about PDA, even though I, I apologize always in advance. PDA, horrible acronym. It's yeah. not a public display of 
affection okay. and pathological demand avoidance doesn't kind of sit well with a lot of people as because yeah. it's logical. So. so language does matter. And it also in and of itself doesn't really describe what it is. Right. But before we jump into that, I, I always love to ask my guests, how did you end up on this path? You know, where, where did your background and history lead you to this point? All right, I'll make a, a long story short. So I was probably the only 10-year-old who wanted to be a social worker. And <laughs> I like volunteered to trick-or-treat for UNICEF. <laughs> I um, heard about Jane Addams and wanted to go to Jane Addams School of Social Work before I even kind of heard of Chicago and went to Jane Addams School of Social Work. Um, but as a teenager, the only social worker I knew um, was a mom in my neighborhood, a single adoptive mom. And when her daughter, who was my age, reached adolescence, she um, was acting out a bit. And like a good social worker, she got all the girls in the neighborhood together to do a community project. And it was um, volunteering at our local special recreation program. Mm -hmm. So I started that at 15 and decided I wanted to use social work for working with neurodivergent individuals. Of course, we didn't have that term back then. Right. So that's kind of how I focused. And I worked for schools and private agencies and schools. I always worked in special ed and then decided I couldn't kind of work in a system anymore or have a boss. So I started my own practice. Um, so I so resonate with that, by the way. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit PDA-ish, which we'll talk about later too. But um, so I kind of focused on generally autistic individuals, parents of autistic kids in my private practice. And then dabbled a bit in trauma because I, I went back and got a BCBA board certification as a behavior analyst about 15 years ago, mostly because I wasn't thrilled on how behavior was looked at in the field. Right. And I, I wanted a seat at the table. So it was one of those, if you can't beat them, join them mm -hmm. philosophies. And because I was a social worker and behavior analyst, I started working and doing behavior assessments with kids in Chicago with horrible trauma histories and kind of supporting their behavior um, in a more social work lens, a ho more holistic lens. And then because I was still working in autism at the same time, like everything that happens in um, kind of the disability world, things happen because a parent pushed it. So yeah. I had a parent saying, you've got to pay attention to this PDA thing. And you know, as, as many of us who work in autism, there's always new things popping up. So, and we're all busy and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will when I have time. And she didn't take no for an answer. So I started, um, you know, kind of looking at what she sent me and reading about PDA. Uh, everything was from the UK that she sent me. And I thought, oh, wow, I, I know these kids and all the interventions and supports that are recommended in these PDA books and articles were the 
um, supports and interventions I was using in my behavior assessments for these kids with trauma. They were just kind of fed better, you know, in these books. And okay, it it really stuck with me. And I thought, all right, I want to get more info on this. And I looked online, I found someone to train me somebody from the UK in um, PDA. Because as you said, it was really in Europe first. Yes. Yeah. Europe and it's in Australia, but not here. Um, So I did my first podcast as a trial, kind of trial balloon on um, in December of 2019 on PDA. And I got calls from parents all over the country. I bet you did. Yeah, it really spoke to people. And then um, we did our first workshop in March 2020 on PDA. And parents came from all over the country. Not a dry eye in the house. And um, we got our European speakers on planes before the world shut down. Wow. I, I can imagine, you know, why the tears were flowing. Because when you're looking for answers. Right. And you're searching, searching, and you feel so much despair. Right. But when somebody, you know, steps up with that answer, I've experienced this in my life with my daughter, Elizabeth, not in the autism world, but she ended up being diagnosed with mitochondrial disease. When she was born, I knew she wasn't your typical CP baby. There was something different, but nobody was listening. Yes. And then there was this article in um, Exceptional Parent Magazine. And I was like, oh my God, that's my kid. I I felt so much relief. Of course, we're going to move on with our story, Diane, because just like your story with PDA, it wasn't accepted. The doctors here, we didn't have any mitochondrial experts here and they just didn't believe it. And, you know, it was a journey. Right, right. And and that's really why I started PDA North America, because I don't want parents to have that feeling of isolation, um, feeling like, you know, no one's listening, that there's not help, and to spend all their energy in seeking answers, instead of focusing on their child. Right. Um, It's just the journey shouldn't be made harder by professionals and yeah, there's so I mean, much judgment yeah quoting you you say finding quality services should not be the most difficult part of parenting yeah yeah and I've always felt that way I mean even you know just getting a call back from mm-hmm. professionals can be a challenge for for parents who are really struggling and, and we're big, you know, we professionals, we're big advice givers without right. always knowing the whole story and what every family needs. And people at the end of the day need to be listened to and validated. And there's no one size fits all. What's right for one family can be different for another. Right. And, you know, right. And, and, and when your child has behavior um, that causes challenges for other people, which mm-hmm. is a part of this PDA experience, we view the behavior, and we'll talk more about PDA, 
as more of a panic attack, but people use the word meltdown or challenging behavior or behavior yeah. problem or um, explosive behavior. But that sends, you know, the world into this judgmental advice given um, kind of mode and parents feel that they have to follow advice, even if they know it's not going to work just to be kind of compliant parents because they're right. just. Yeah. I mean, we do as parents have to be very careful and thoughtful about challenging the professionals and the status quo. And if you don't go through the five things that you know won't work, so you will never get to the thing that will work because you can't get insurance to pay for it. You can't get the doctors to agree to it. You can't get the therapist to agree to it. And you have to go through all of their typical, you know, I'm a hammer, you're a nail situations right. before you can get to, but wait, I'm a screw. Right, <laughs> right, absolutely. And it's just, I'm very practical and I think impatient. So that stuff really gets to me. And our typical view of behavioral support, especially kind of crisis interventions, as I've, I've worked in 14 schools, I love talking about behavior and training people. I mean, the fact that what we typically do when a child has lost emotional regulation and is escalating, that what we typically do, we come in and we crowd them and we talk to them and we escalate their behavior. Mm. That just you know, makes my head right. want to fly off. Well, we start making demands of them. Right. You right. Know? We make demands and they aren't able to comply. And we, you know, basically do everything wrong. And then we blame the child that think mm-hmm. instead of our interventions that make things worse. And that was really a, a turning point for me, just seeing this over and over that it's, you know, we're making children's behavior worse by our mm. typical interventions. And, and that well, got me interested in PDA and work. Let's, well. let's sure. tell everybody what PDA is. What is so, demand thank avoidance? Thank you. Now that's a good, a good question. So I got us off on a tangent. No, I uh, did. I no, always I, do. <laughs> me too. I'm fascinated. So, you know, I want to ask every question in the book. Um, but we should really start sure. at the beginning. So um, absolutely. So Diane's got a lot of good information on our website um, and also on the PDA website, PDA North America website as well. But I just want you to, um, you know, let's kind of sure. take a step back. Absolutely. So PDA is a profile of autism. So you can't fit this profile if you're not autistic. And that's something that's confusing to people. Uh So it's this small, distinct profile of autism, where the individuals uh, avoid demands and expectations. And they do it in a way that is unique in that they have an anxiety-based need for control. So some people, there's there's a PDA or in the UK, PDA or is what you call someone who fits this profile, um, who calls PDA 
uh, pervasive drive for autonomy. And oh, cool. It's a really cool name. But since we're just kind of starting in the U.S., I can't mess with the name. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's a way to think of it. The, the individuals who fit this profile can't do things if they're suggested by others. They even sometimes can't do things that they want to do. They need this autonomy, the strong drive. And it's important that anyone who's, who's listening and trying to understand PDA understand that it's a matter of that they can't comply. It's not a choice. Mm -hmm. It's not that they won't, that they're making a conscious decision. They just can't. They are so flooded with anxiety. And what, you know, we've known for years, but people are paying maybe hopefully a little more attention lately is that, um, you know, our nervous systems, right? They, they are triggered to sense threat and seek safety and human beings go into fight, flight, or freeze mm -hmm. when they're under stress or sensing threat. And PDAers very easily go into fight, flight, or freeze. I was trained by Laura Kirby in the UK, and she and Harry Thompson um, together have an organization called Nest, and he's a fabulous PDAer and um, has a YouTube channel and has written two books, and um, people love kind of listening to him. He's brilliant. Um, and so is Laura. And Laura talks about um, kind of the nervous system of a PDAer, and she says, kind of for a typical person, a neurotypical person, your nervous system, it's more like um, your smoke detector in your house. If, you know, you burn toast, you know, in your toaster oven or something on the stove, it goes off. But when you have a nervous system like a PDA or your smoke alarm would go off if someone lights a cigarette down the block. Mm -hmm. It's just so reactive. So it doesn't take much to trigger um, a re reaction from a PDAer. So not just direct demands, uh, which are hard, like brush your teeth, pick up your toys, mm -hmm. get dressed, we got to go. Even like Harry Thompson talks about as a kid, just in the morning coming down, his mom saying good morning to him. And that implies you're supposed to respond good morning back. And just that demand, that expectation was enough to, to flood him with emotion and kind of ruin his mornings. Mm. And um, so it's, it's a different way of, of learning about anxiety and neurodiversity and autism because PDAers are usually have more um, social interest or better kind of social skills than a typical autistic person in that they 
make eye contact. They want to be with people. They're very creative and imaginative, which leads professionals to tell parents or say to them, oh, you can't be autistic. Yeah. And that makes things really hard. And especially if that person's uh, a girl or a woman, Mm-hmm. Because they look very different than our male stereotypical picture of autism. But they have the same sensory uh, sensitivities as someone with autism. Really difficult to understand context and things that are more subtle changes. So what are some of the markers of PDA that would lead to a diagnosis? Because I understand it's not in the DSM yet. No, and I haven't even started working on that yet. We're just kind of working on awareness. But one day, we really need it in the DSM. Mm-hmm. So so the UK, they're ahead of us um, in this. And they've kind of went through the same process. So kind of looking to them. So I think it's going to be a number of years. So mm-hmm. what what really marks these children or adults is this need for autonomy, this need for control and the inability to follow a demand that's given by someone else or or follow a routine even that's suggested by someone else. Mm -hmm. So lots of the kids have problems with hygiene with getting up, with going to sleep, with picking up their toys, just the daily, the not big demands, but just daily demands. They're not able to do it because it's expected or they're told to do. Uh, I always think of an example of one girl who was about to go out and take a walk, but she knew that was good for her. And her mom was you know, reading in the living room, not even looking up. Um, to see her daughter putting on her gym shoes and stuff and just said, oh, it's a beautiful day. You should take a walk. And her daughter said, oh, now I can't do it because her mom had suggested it when she was, had gotten to the place that she was going to do it on her own. Mm. It just is such a threat to have that autonomy taken away that it floods them with anxiety. Okay. And, so, so not being able to do everyday demands, needing control. So sometimes people will, parents will say, everything's a negotiation, mm-hmm. you know, because they have to take control of a situation to be able to do it there. And often the kids are very creative in how they avoid because they want to please. So they might um, go into a role you know, that a lot of the kids are very imaginative and do a lot of role play. So they might go into a role um, to say, well, I can't, um, you know, I can't clean my room. I'm so sorry because I'm a dog and I don't have hands. So I can't, I wish I could. Or they might postpone, say, all right, I'll do it later just to try to push it off. Or they might hide all kinds of ways or try to distract you. You look so pretty today, mom. <laughs> just, you know, try to get out of doing things because it, it's just so hard for them to do it. 
Well, and there are going to be times though, when you have to follow a parent's, you know, guidance or demands or a teacher's. Um, although some people definitely espouse the unschooling right. method or Montessori method, which works for some kids, I would imagine would work very well in this situation. About 70% of PDAers in the UK, because that's where we have that information, don't attend formal school mm-hmm. regularly because it's so hard. School's like all about demands and compliance, yeah. especially, I mean, that's there's, what's yeah. really there's just compliance. No flexibility and no choice. Right. So, um, so what, what do you do? What do you do? What's the treatment or okay. what's the process, the clinical process? Because there are going to be times when a five-year-old must look both ways, cross the street at the crosswalk, you know, I mean, and they need to be taught and reminded of these things. So how, how do you work on that? So there's a lot of ways. I think instead of direct therapy, kind of fixing the child, the best way to look at it is creating an environment with low conflict, low anxiety, low stress, and looking at the child's whole world. So that's just that mindset. What really is most important is that the child has trusting relationships with people that he knows or she knows get him, understand him, have his um, best, you know, interest. And that can't be forced. You know, children or adults decide who they trust. So Mm -hmm. having that trust makes all the difference. And then along with that kind of different and similar is that these kids and adults do best when the approach is collaborative and through a partnership. Mm-hmm. So if they're taking a walk and they're, they're both kind of stopping at crosswalks equally, or, you know, so it's this partnership. So the child isn't being singled out. What, one of the sometimes um, hallmarks of a PDA or is they don't recognize age differences or authority. They're not going to just respect someone because they're the principal. They Mm -hmm. kind of look at themselves as equal to everyone. There's no kind of age difference. So um, the adult also needs to kind of do the work um, and do it together at the same time. So they're sharing the task. Mm -hmm. It makes a huge difference giving choices um, and kind of the use of declarative language, which sometimes I think people know about, but it's also, you could say indirect language that I think some of us know it works better, but it's just so not how we think. So uh, how an adult would phrase kind of a directive to a PDA mm-hmm. is really different. So instead of maybe stop at this corner, which is kind of a demand, it would be kind of thinking out loud, like wonder what the best way could be 
not to for us not to be run over by a car. And then the child can problem solve it and maybe say to stop at that corner. Yeah, all right. So the child is the problem solving, comes up with a solution. You're just kind of putting things out there, thinking aloud. They're doing the problem solving. Okay. And then it's not a demand. So thinking out loud, I wonder, maybe it's like an invitation to mm -hmm. do things. It just kind of soft, brings down the anxiety. How does this relate to ODD? It's a good question because often kids come, you know, who I'm talking to the parents, come into the consultation and the kid has a diagnosis of um, ADHD, uh, anxiety disorder, and ODD. And Oppos oppositional defiance disorder. Sorry, I should have said that. Yes, I know. I try not to use it initials. Oh. And of course, I always go into them. Right. Alphabet soup. Yeah. We just live in alphabet soup land. So sorry, audience. Oppositional okay. defiance disorder. So it, it's very different. So one is, and probably most important, is individuals who get this ODD diagnosis they're not autistic. So, so people with PDA are autistic. So that is different. So they have kind of the, I don't know, the differences, the neurological differences, the neurodiversity. Okay. ODD people do not. Okay. The other thing, a couple other things is, um, which stand out to me is that Generally, someone with ODD is kind of rebelling against authority. But PDAers don't even see it. They don't okay. even see authority. And, okay. and one of the things that's really important, so I want to make sure I say, because I'm old and I forget things, <laughs> uh, is, is what is so important and tricky with PDAers is generally our strategies to support kids that are struggling don't work for this population. And they might work for an OD, somebody who really does have ODD, but rewards and consequences, which is really the hallmark of how we um, treat kids with autism. With autism, autism, yeah. And, and, you know, even troubled kids or different kids that does not work for PDAers. And it makes perfect sense to me in that even rewards, even praise, even good things raise anxiety because you want to get it. Right. And anything that raises anxiety is going to backfire because these kids are so anxious, anxious. So, you know, setting schedules for them, that's just a demand. All that routine. Mm -hmm. PDAers like novelty. They don't like routine. And, okay. and one thing that's different with PDAers um, than other populations is that they understand and see kind of the social order and what's expected, even if they can't always comply with that. So 
a lot of PDAers mask. So they look and act very different in one setting. Like at school, they might be very quiet and hold it together and then come home and totally mm-hmm. fall apart. And I've then, known a few of those, Diane. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And it takes a toll to hold it together all day. Yeah. And then the parents, if they report it, to school, school's like, oh, I don't believe it. You know, he's so charming. He's so great. Or I don't believe it. It must be a problem at home. That's right. It it's always a home problem. Right. Something you're doing because he's great at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I always think when I, of my career and think, oh, gosh, I wonder how many kids I said kind of good job to were just masking at school. Yeah. And that yeah. does everyone a disservice. It, it's really unhealthy. Um, Makes and, sense. Yeah. And that's, that's also a trait that can kind of give that, mm, I wonder if this kid fits the profile when you hear that, um, that they're falling apart at home. And then, you know, people, someone will say, no, no, it can't be because he makes eye contact. He's so creative and imaginative. Mm -hmm. Being with friends is the most important thing to him. He can't be autistic. And then these kids are just left suffering and these parents are left being isolated. Without answers, Yeah. yeah. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is when does this usually get diagnosed? Is there an, a, a specific age period or can you see it in young children and adults alike? You can. I mean, we are just starting in America. So we had, I did that first webinar, December, 2019. We did the first conference, March, 2020. And then when the world shut down, that gave me an opportunity to get the website out because I thought, oh, if we have a website, it will look like a real thing. So parents can show school or their in-laws, you know, like, look, there's a website. Um, So it's only since then we've been spreading awareness. So we're um, through kind of Nest in the UK, we've been certifying professionals um, too. So on the, you know, it's a small number, but it's growing. So we only have kind of a handful probably, you know, maybe there's 10 people I know in the U.S. now who diagnose PDA. There's probably more. I don't know. Um, but so it, it's hard to say because we're just starting to. Right. Do, and there's a lot of, you know, people that aren't willing to diagnose it because it's not in the DSM. Mm-hmm. So we try to compromise. You know, if you can, if you can look at autism more broadly, Thinking outside the box on autism, and then you can, um, you'll recognize more kids, and then you can say, and meets the PDA profile description. So it can be a three-year-old or a 50-year-old. I'm getting emails. uh, Now I've been saying the last month or so, maybe four a day. When I started, it was about 10 a month. So from parents or individuals who are having that light bulb moment about PDA. And sometimes it's from a 50 year old Mm -hmm. who said, I have struggled my whole life. 
with various things. I just heard about PDA Mm -hmm. and they're often have never been diagnosed with autism. Yes. And it's eye opening and it answers why things have been so hard. Well, that's, that kind of leads me to my last question because we are running out of time. If you are that individual who's 30 or 40 or 50 or a parent who has concerns and hears about PDA, what is your first step? What's the first thing that they should do? How do they get started? I think most parents go to, you know, Google and hopefully they'll, they'll find PDA society in the UK or PDA North America. I I think it's just too hard to do it alone. So, but, um, so trying to, to find the community we're small and mighty, I think educating yourself about PDA, there's great books from the UK for children, for adults. So really learning about PDA. I'm writing a book with one of the UK authors for American audience on PDA. So I think really educating yourself so you can talk to the professionals in your life. Mm -hmm. You can talk to your child's school try to find someone who you think is the most open-minded. And I think giving yourself permission as a parent to let go of what you think good parenting is, consequences after misbehavior, timeouts, yeah. none of the charts on the refrigerator, right. none of those things are gonna help your child instead co-regulate, work on the emotional regulation, lending your calm to the child, getting yourself support. That Um, is wonderful advice. I love it. So I essentially boiled your advice down to get educated and then prepare for you to bring this to the professionals because right now they're not likely to bring it to you and say, hmm, I think your child has this, you know? So as always, we have to be the experts So we have to, whether it's for ourselves or for our children or somebody that we're caring for, we have to be the experts. We have to do our homework. We have to get ourselves prepared to, you know, push an agenda that needs to be pushed. And that is, it is difficult and will take some time. So I love your advice about some self-care and keeping the calm. Um, That is fantastic. Uh, Audience, I just was riveted by this conversation. I am fascinated with this. I do know a number of people who I think fit into this category. And I bet we all do. Right. You know, so I definitely want to learn more. I'm going to have some information in the show notes so that you can reach out to Diane or PDA North America. Um, and me, so, I answer. And, 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 you know, ask your questions or tell your story because telling our story is so important, as we always say on the show. And then thank you so much, Diane, for thank all you. of your hard work. Thanks for bringing this to our audience. Um, I, I know that we are going to have a lot of feedback about this. So, so I so glad. appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, gosh, no, I so appreciate you having me. I really want people to to know about PDA and spread the word. So thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. 
I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.